Good morning. How do you handle waiting, watching, looking out for that thing to arrive, that thing to happen, and you know it's just around the corner, at least you hope it is, but you just don't quite know when. Um, how do you handle waiting? You're somebody who's patient, just cracks on with normal daily life and, and doesn't really think about it much, or you're somebody who agonises over it. I suppose it probably depends on what it is. If it's that parcel you've been looking forward to, and you're waiting, is it going to come in the first post? Is it kind of going to come in the evening delivery? And you're looking forward to it. There's a sense of expectation and you can't quite wait. Christmas is just around the corner. Maybe you love this kind of time of year because you love to look forward to good things, feasting and presents and family and those kind of things. But there's other kinds of waiting that are excruciating. I read a headline this week that said some people recently have been waiting 40 hours for an ambulance to arrive. And then I imagine waiting longer in A&E, waiting to be seen, waiting, and that's excruciating for patients. It's, I imagine, excruciating for doctors and for nurses and for paramedics who want to see people and serve and help people. Some kinds of waiting like that are really painful, are really difficult. And that's what our story is about today, about the difficult kind of pain that leads you to wait and wait. The man in our story today, Joseph, waited for years, watched the door, watched the horizon for years, waiting to see his family again, waiting to be freed from a faraway country where he'd been dragged off and didn't belong. Joseph was a man who waited. And we're looking at the moment in this season of Advent at stories from the Old Testament of people who waited. Last week, we were looking at Abraham waiting for a son with his wife, Sarah, in their old age, not really believing if it ever really could happen. But God had promised. And so eventually they trusted him and they saw their son, their son who was the, the one who would be the next step in God, blessing the whole of the world, who would point us forward to the son, the Lord Jesus, who'd be born into the world and bring blessing and forgiveness and justice for this whole world that waits to be free. Well, today we're looking at another one of those stories, the story of Joseph. Let me read it to you um, from Genesis chapter 37. If you've got a Bible with you, it's, um, it's about 12, 13 chapters long, so we're not going to be able to read every word of it this morning, but I'm going to give you a good flavour of Joseph, the man who waited and who was faithful as he waited. This is the kind of question that we can ask ourselves as we go through, is how do you wait with faithfulness? How can you wait loyally, waiting with loyalty for the king to come back, waiting for him to come and bring freedom? So Joseph begins, um, his story begins in Genesis chapter 37. Let me read it for you. Genesis 37, this is the account of Jacob's family line. Jacob was Joseph's dad. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives, and he brought their father a bad report about them. Now Israel, that's another name for Jacob, Joseph's father, loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he'd been born to him in his old age and he made an ornate robe, this technicolor dream coat, for Joseph. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a word to him. Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said to them, listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of corn out in the field when suddenly my sheaf arose and stood upright, while your sheaves gathered round mine and bowed down to it. 
His brother said to him, do you intend to reign over us? Will, will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he'd said. Joseph has a really terrible relationship with his brothers. And sometime later, they've gone out on a long trip, taking the sheep to pasture. They're miles and miles and miles away, and Joseph is sent by his father to go and find them, to take a message to them, and he faithfully does that. He's loyal to his father, and he goes far away to find these brothers who hate him, and they see him coming from a distance. And they say, here comes that dreamer. This is Genesis 37, verse 19. Here comes that dreamer. They said to each other, Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of these pits and say that a ferocious animal has devoured him. Then they'll see, then we'll see what comes of his dreams. When Reuben heard this, the older brother, he tried to rescue him from their hands. Let's not take his life, he said. Don't shed any blood. Throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but don't lay a hand on him. Reuben said this to rescue him from them and take him back to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the ornate robe he was wearing. They took him and they threw him into the pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. As they sat down to eat their meal, they looked up and saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were loaded with spices, balm and myrrh, and they were on their way to take them down to Egypt. Judah said to his brothers, what will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood. His brothers agreed. So when the Midianite merchants came by, his brothers pulled Joseph up out of the cistern and sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites who took him down to Egypt. And so they famously kill an animal, dip the coat in the blood, take it back to his father and his father's broken hearted. Joseph's been sold into slavery. But imagine what it was like for him down in that well, down in that pit, waiting, looking up at this little circle of light. He's down there in the darkness, down in the dusty darkness. No water in the, in the pit, thankfully. But he's looking up and he's waiting. And later on in the story, you hear that he's screaming. Screams that stayed with the brothers for decades afterwards. Screams that they just couldn't unhear in their worst dreams, in their most honest moments. They couldn't get away from what they did to Joseph. But Joseph is there waiting, waiting, hoping that it's just some joke, hoping that they're gonna come back after lunch and pull him out, hoping and hoping. And then he hears voices. And then he sees against the sunshine at the top of the well, a couple of faces appear, but the voices aren't speaking his language. The faces, when his eyes eventually adjust to the light, they aren't the faces of his brothers. They're the faces of slave traders, of men who pull him up, take money, take money for his life and drag him off down into slavery, into another pit, a metaphorical pit, down to Egypt, down to a place where he's far away from home. Imagine what that would have been like, waiting and waiting and watching. But then it just gets worse. And so the story continues. He gets put in, in the house of a man called Potiphar, who is... Uh, one of the uh, pharaohs, one of the Egyptian king's highest officials. And actually he does pretty well in the house. That's chapter 39. He does really well that he's raised up to a place of prominence. He's been um, trusted with everything in this household. He's had everything shared with him by his master. And then his master's wife, Potiphar's wife, comes and starts to take a shine to Joseph starts to try and tempt him and, and drag him into bed with her. And one day, 
they're alone in the house together and she tries to get him into bed and he runs away. She grabs his coat, same, similar to the first story, grabs his coat, rips it off him and you can imagine him sitting outside under a tree thinking, no, 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 it's happening again. You can feel the breeze on his shoulders this time where his coat should be. He can hear the kerfuffle in the house as she's screaming and shouting and accusing him, accusing him of the most horrible things and none of it's true. And he can feel himself sinking down into the pit. Again, that's just what happens. Um, Potiphar, the master, comes home and finds that, according to his wife, Joseph, has has done about the worst thing he could do to to a master, to a friend, to anybody else. She accuses him. And so he's thrown into a pit, thrown into jail. Chapter 39 Verse 19, when his master heard the story his wife had told him, saying, this is how your slave treated me. He burned with anger. Joseph's master took him and put him in prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. But while Joseph was there in prison, the Lord was with him. He showed him kindness and granted him favour in the eyes of the prison warder. So the warder put Joseph in charge of all those held in the prison, and he was made responsible for all that was done there. The warder paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care, because the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did. So he's here in prison and he's waiting and he's waiting and he's waiting, but God's with him and helping him. And he rises up to prominence again. And even the prison warden gives him responsibility and actually doesn't really care about watching him too much because he trusts him so much. Joseph seems like a really trustworthy, faithful, loyal man, even when he's down in the pit, even when he's in prison. And so eventually a couple of other prisoners turn up. Um, a baker, in fact, Pharaoh's chief baker, and also a cupbearer, Pharaoh's chief of the vineyards, the one who would pass him his drinks and probably sip them for poison and choose his wine that would go with, with each meal. Two men who were really trusted by Pharaoh, but something's happened and they're both in jail and they both have dreams. And Joseph interprets these dreams. One is going to be raised up and freed back to his old life and the other well, it's not going to go so well for him. He's going to be executed. Joseph interprets these dreams. And when he's interpreting the dream for the cupbearer, who's going to be released and it's all going to go well for him, he says to him these really tragic words. He says, look, chapter 40, verse 14, when all goes well with you, remember me. Remember me and show me kindness. Mention me to Pharaoh and get me out of this pit. I was forcibly carried off from the land of the Hebrews. And even here, I've done nothing to deserve being put in this pit. He calls the prison a pit. He recognises what's happening. He's been waiting, he's been faithful, he's been loyal, but he's fed up. He doesn't want to be in the prison anymore and asks this man to help him. But at the end of the chapter, when it's Pharaoh's birthday and he executes one guy and frees the cupbearer, as he walks out into the sunshine, out of the prison doors, carrying Joseph's hope for freedom, the chief cupbearer, verse 23 of chapter 40, it says, the chief cupbearer, however, did not remember Joseph. He forgot him. And it's two years, two long years go past before we hear of Joseph again. And you can imagine him in that prison, watching, waiting, watching the prison door, every knock at the door, every visitor who comes. Is, is it going to be somebody from Pharaoh's house who's come to set me free, who's come to bring me out, who's come to hear my case and get me out of this pit? Every time the door is knocked, every time a visitor comes, every morning he wakes up and he's watching and hoping today might be the day that he's set free, that he's lifted up out of the pit. 
but two long years go by and it doesn't happen. And eventually Pharaoh has a dream, chapter 41 and into the beginning of chapter 42. Pharaoh has dreams um, that Joseph comes out eventually and interprets. Dreams that there are going to be seven years of plenty in the land and then seven years of famine. So what you should do, Pharaoh, is store up all the grain that you have in those seven years of plenty so that you can survive through seven years of famine. And Pharaoh goes, great idea. Joseph, you've got the job. <laughs> and frees him from the prison, takes him out and lifts him up again. You see, the story is just ups and downs for Joseph. And this is one of the great ups. And he stays up for pretty much the rest of the story. Joseph is lifted up to almost the highest office in the land alongside Pharaoh. And he's put over all of that food and he works hard. He gets married. He begins to have children. Life begins to get better, but he's far, far away from home. So you can imagine him each night. He's coming home from his work, overseeing all the food production and food storage of the whole of the land of Egypt. Everybody's lives are in his hands. For seven years, he's working hard, working his hands to the bone, writing and writing and writing, recording all of the food that's stored, working hard to build barns and bigger barns and bigger silos and all this stuff to store the grain. And he's working hard and every night he's coming home. Imagine him, exhausted, fingers worn out from all that writing, mind worn out from all the calculating. Is it going to be enough? Is it going to be enough? Please, God, make it enough. Save these people from this famine that's coming. You can imagine him praying that kind of thing. And then as he's drifting off to sleep, his mind turns to home. Maybe it's 20 odd years behind now. A long, long time ago, he hasn't seen his brothers for ages. Would he want to see them? He hasn't seen his baby brother, Benjamin, ever, possibly. He hasn't seen his father who he loves and who loves him for ages. And perhaps he's imagining, watching, waiting, looking at, at, at the Egyptian um, sunrise, looking out at the horizon and wondering if today's going to be the day when they walk over that horizon and where he meets them again, where they're able to reconcile, where he gets to see his old dad again, where he gets to wear that old coat and be Joseph as he's really meant to be. He's watching and he's waiting and this whole story is all about that until one day, almost miraculously, they do walk over the horizon. The famine comes. The people are hungry, not just in Egypt, but all across the region. And so Joseph's brothers turn up. Chapter 42, verse 6. Now Joseph was the governor of the land, the person who sold grain to all its people. So when Joseph's brothers arrived to get food, they bowed down with their faces to the ground. As soon as Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them, but he pretended to be a stranger and spoke harshly to them. Where do you come from? He asked. From the land of Canaan, they replied, to buy food. Although Joseph recognized his brothers, they didn't recognize him. Then he remembered his dreams about them and said to them, You're spies. You've come to see where our land is unprotected. He's beginning to test and prod and see what their characters are like. And they say, No, my lord, your servants have come to buy food. We are all the sons of one man. Your servants are honest men, not spies. No, Joseph says to them, You have come to see where our land is unprotected. But they replied, your servants were 12 brothers, the sons of one man who lives in the land of Canaan. The youngest is now with our father and one is no more. One has died. And so Joseph keeps on prodding and pushing. And the next couple of chapters are this kind of elaborate plan to test their character. He sends them back home with grain after a little while in prison, three days in prison. <laughs> um, and then eventually they come back again with Benjamin and um, 
and he holds Benjamin hostage, testing his brothers to see whether they'll really care about this younger boy who's stuck down in Egypt. Whether when they go back to Jacob, their father, whether, whether they'll care enough to do something about him, whether they'll care enough to rescue him, whether their hearts really have changed at all. You see, Joseph has been waiting and waiting and waiting, watching that horizon to see his brothers come back, to see if they'll have changed, to see if there might be a chance of redemption, a chance to put all things right again. And it comes and they have changed. And a couple of chapters later, Joseph can't take it any longer. Uh, every now and again in his meetings with him, he's been nipping out of the room, <laughs> crying, and then washing his face and coming back in in front of them and kind of pretending to be the Egyptian official who's very hard and solemn and testing them. Um, but inside his heart is breaking. And so in chapter 45, he can't hold it back any longer. His brothers are all there and Joseph says, uh, sorry, it says in chapter 45, verse 1, Then Joseph could no longer control himself before all his attendants, and he cried out, Make everyone leave my presence. So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him, and Pharaoh's household heard about it. He's crying so much, so loud, that the rumours are going round the whole royal household. What's going on with Joseph? Well, Joseph said to his brothers, I'm Joseph. Is my father still living? See, this whole time they hadn't recognised him. You can imagine him dressed up as an Egyptian. You can imagine his accents changed. In fact, it seems like most of the time he's been speaking to them through an interpreter. He's been speaking Egyptian and they're speaking Hebrew. But he can understand them and they don't understand him. But it's sort of he realises who they are and they don't realise who he is. And now he's blown his cover. He can't handle it anymore. Can't hold it in anymore. And he says, I am Joseph. And this is the biggest question he has. Is my father still alive? Am I ever going to see him again? His brothers weren't able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. Imagine what that would have been like. You sold him into slavery. You've been through all of this stuff with this scary Egyptian official wondering whether he'll give you food, whether he'll survive, whether he'll chuck you in prison, whether he'll execute you. And it turns out to be your brother. I wonder if they had any inkling about it at all or if it was just so outside of anything they ever imagined that they just couldn't believe it. They had terrified. And then Joseph said to his brothers, chapter 45, verse, 40, uh, verse 4, come close to me. And when they'd done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And now don't be distressed and don't be angry with yourselves for selling me here, because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. God sent me. Isn't that a funny way to speak about being sold into slavery? For two years now, there has been famine in the land, and for the next five years, there'll be no ploughing and reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So he gives them a job to do. Go back, get your father, bring him here. And then he goes to his younger brother, Benjamin. Verse 14, he threw his arms around his brother and wept. Benjamin embraced him weeping and he kissed all his brothers and wept over them. And his brothers talked with him. You can imagine those kind of conversations. And the next couple of chapters are really about being reunited about homecoming, although home comes to him. Jacob and the rest of the family get in these carts that he sends up and they all come down to Egypt to be with Joseph, to have food, to have life, to be put back together again, for everything sad to come untrue, for tears to be wiped away. Joseph is, the waiting's over. He sees his father 
and they fall on each, on each other and just weep and weep and weep for all those lost years, for all those years in the pit, all that waiting and the waiting's over and he sees his dad again. And then afterwards, right at the end of the story when his dad has died, Joseph says something really remarkable. This is one of the great lines in all of scripture. His brothers ask for forgiveness. They worry a bit that now his dad is dead, that he's gonna come back and take revenge on them. And he says, no, 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 don't worry. Don't fear. Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? This is what he says. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. It's an amazing story, the story of Joseph. You intended it for evil. You threw me down in this pit. You sold me into slavery. Part of his wife, you made allegations. That cupbearer, you forgot about me. All these people, some intended harm. Some just, just did it out of negligence. All these people harmed Joseph, but he sees a hand behind it all. A hand that's working for good, for the good of many people to save others. Joseph is a man who trusts God. Joseph is a man who waited. Joseph is a man who watched, who watched for the dawn to come over the horizon, who watched for good to break into his life, who watched for love to win out, who watched for redemption, for everything to be put back together again. And in his story, we see the story of Jesus. Don't you, if you know the story of Jesus at all, there are so many parallels here. So many beautiful things. Jesus was the one who left his home. He wasn't sent into slavery, but he came willingly from heaven as the God who made you and me stepped down out of heaven to this pit, to this dusty, muddy, smelly world, born in a stable, laid down with animals, spending time with people who often rejected him and didn't want anything to do with him. Eventually, he was betrayed for silver by one of his closest friends, accused false accusations that people knew were complete rubbish. Even the people judging him knew were complete rubbish, and then they sent him to die on the cross anyway. They planted him in that pit of the grave, rolled a stone in front of him, and it seemed like it was over, that God was dead, that Jesus had been laid in the pit and that all would be darkness forever. And then on the third day, on the third day, the stone was rolled away and people came to the tomb, people who loved him, but they didn't recognize him. They didn't see who he really was until through tears, they did, <laughs> they saw him. He broke bread with them and lots of different people started to recognize who he really was, that he'd been raised up, lifted up out of the pit out of the grave, out of death, and had been transformed to be the person, it says in Philippians 2, who would reign over everything. That he was God, who, who didn't count equality with God. Life, comfortable life in heaven is something to be gripped and held onto, but gave it up willingly to come down to our pit and then was raised up again to sit at the right hand of God, to be the king, the ruler over everything, who judged the living and the dead, who'd, who'd provide food, spiritual food, spiritual nourishment for billions of people, for anybody who would want to, to come down to his land, to his kingdom, to his presence, and come and have life with him. You see, that's what Christmas is all about, isn't it? It's about the, the true and better new Joseph, the one who came down to the pit but was raised up again, 
to give salvation to many people. We intended it for harm. We killed the Son of God. But God intended it for good. That's the mystery. The, the wildness of the cross is that God planned it. That we did it. That we're responsible for it. But that he planned it behind all of those things for our good. Do you know this doesn't just look forward to Jesus' birth at Christmas time. It looks forward to, as we should do at Advent, to Jesus' second coming. To the time when we'll see him for who he really is in all of his glory. When he'll come on the clouds. When he'll, when he'll come to meet us and we'll see his face, as it says in Revelation. And what's he going to do? Well, there'll be lots of weeping, but he'll wipe every tear from our eyes. He'll make everything sad come untrue. He'll give us life forever. He'll be with us and we'll be with him and we'll fall at his face. We'll fall at his feet, regretting everything we've ever done against him. All of those sins that we just can't get out of our minds, the, the screams and the memories and the horrors, the things that have been done to us and the things that, are, that we've done to other people that you can't get away from in your most honest moments, like those brothers could never get away from those screams. And then they fell at his feet and said, forgive me. Well, we'll fall at his feet and he'll lift us up again, just like Joseph did to his brothers. And he'll say, don't be afraid. Come and enter your master's happiness. Come and dine, eat in my house. Come and find your place at the table. Come and belong. I'm putting everything back together again, making all things new. You see, this is a story that helps us not just see the Christmas story of Jesus, but the story of Jesus' second advent of Jesus' second coming, of when he'll come back, when we'll see him for who he really is, recognise him, and he'll put all things together. So the question is, as we get towards the end of this story, is how do we put that into practice? How can we be people who, like Joseph, watch and wait? How can we be loyal and faithful like him? Well, the first thing I think we need to do is face up to the darkness. Look around and see that we're in a pit. Advent is a season that helps us to do that. We've got Christmas coming, but it's not quite yet. Right now, there's darkness around. The, the nights are still drawing in. The mornings, even mornings, are dark. And we feel that in our lives, in our world, don't we? It's a dark time. It's a lonely time. It's a cold time. It feels like the master has gone away on a long journey. We don't know when he's coming back yet. Look around and face the darkness. Face the fact that we're in a pit but that God is still in control, right? We need to look up and do what Joseph does time and time again. If you go and read that story, it'll probably take you an hour or so. There's all these little times where you can see Joseph trusting in God, when you can see him telling other people about God, when you can see him praying to God and asking for help to interpret dreams, when you can see him trusting that there is a hand behind all of this that is working all things for the good of those who love him. And Joseph loves God. Do you? Are you somebody who's come and fallen at his feet and said, I'm in a pit. My life is dark. A part of that's my responsibility. But Lord, would you lift me up? Would you pull me out? Would you give me life? I wonder if you've come to Jesus and realised that it's his hands that are on, on the controls of history. It's his hands that work behind it all. Um, as an old and famous hymn goes, God moves in a mysterious way his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. You fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. We should ask the big questions. 
we should ask, why do so many terrible things happen? If God is really on his throne, if Jesus is at his right hand ruling history, then then why doesn't why don't things change? Why don't things get better? Why is there so much pain? Where is God right now? We should face the darkness, face the pit, realize where we are, but look up to him. Look up and see him. Look up and wait and watch for the day when those clouds which we dread so much will break with blessings on our head. You've got to face the darkness. Ask those big questions. Advent is a good time to do that. And as we do that, I think we'll come to realise, I hope we do, that God is the God who is in control. That God is a God who knows how we suffer because he's suffered with us and for us. And that he's the God who brings hope, who brings light, who brings dawn over the horizon and comes to meet us in the Lord Jesus. So face the darkness and to faithfully serve the master, even while he's away. It feels cold, it feels lonely, it feels like we've been left to our own devices sometimes. Like the church is such a mess. Like it's shrinking, as we've seen in the census this this last week. Like all hope is lost, like is he ever even coming back? Do we really believe that he's gonna ride on the clouds and come and, and visit us again? Yes, yes we do. And what should we do in the meantime? We should faithfully serve him. Wherever you are, whatever your job is, these are the words of Paul in um, Colossians. He says, whatever you do, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. That's what Joseph did, isn't it? In Potiphar's house as a slave, works hard, is a trustworthy guy, is loyal to his master, even though his master is a slave owner. He's faithful to him, loyal, and God lifts him up and blesses those around him. And it's the same with Pharaoh later on after he gets out of prison. He just faithfully serves, does his job really well, works hard, wears out his mind in his hands for the good of those around him. And God uses it for, for good. God uses it to bless and to encourage and to lift people up. So what's your work? What is it that you are doing? What is it that God has called you to do in your workplace? How can you do that with loyalty to your bosses, even if they're not particularly good? What is it he's called you to do in your home to serve? How can you do that with loyalty? Loyalty to your friends, loyalty to your husband, to your wife, faithfulness to your children, to your grandchildren faithfulness to your God. How can you do that? Not just serving the people around you, but ultimately serving God, knowing that he's the one who rewards us, that he's the one who sees everything, even what we do in secret, and will put everything right in the end, right every wrong, and reward every good, and serve him faithfully, faithfully serve the master, even while he's away from home. So we face the darkness, we faithfully serve the master, and then we fix our eyes, fix our eyes on Jesus. Joseph is mentioned in this famous passage in Hebrews chapter 11. It's almost like a, a hall of fame of great uh, believers from the Old Testament. And that, le- that long list ends mentioning Joseph, who was looking forward and waiting and watching, actually not just for his family to come home, but for him and his family to go home to Canaan, to the land that God has promised them. Joseph was looking into the future and it says this, these people like Joseph were all commended for their faith. Yet none of them received what had been promised, since God had planned something even better for us, so that only together with us would they be made perfect. He's promised that his son would come, and his son would come again. 
Therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, all these faithful people who've watched and waited, who've looked to God, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. Fix your eyes on Jesus. He really is coming back. It feels cold and lonely and dark for the moment, but be faithful in the house. Be faithful as you work. Those stories Jesus tells, Mark chapter 13, Luke chapter 12, of the master going away on a journey and coming back, will he find us faithful? Will our lamps be burning? Will our batteries be charged up? Will we be waiting at the door for him to knock and for us to open the door to him? Or will we be asleep? Will we have just forgotten about him in despair, in frustration, in selfishness? Or are you going to be waiting? How, how are you when it comes to waiting? Waiting for Jesus? Are you somebody who faces the darkness, who doesn't just hold your nose and wait for heaven, but is really honest about the hardest questions of life? Do you know that God is working for you and with you through those dark moments? Are you somebody who's faithful and loyal to those around you and most of all to God? Are you somebody who's fixing your eyes on Jesus? Because he is all those things. He's the one who's faithful and he'll come back soon. He's the one who's faced up to darkness and swallowed it up at his cross and risen again to, to, to make sure that darkness doesn't have the final say. He's the one who's faithful and loyal to us, even when we're faithless, even when we wonder. So come on, let's fix our eyes on him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are the true and better, greater Joseph. We thank you that you are the one who willingly came down to our pit to take on our darkness, to wash away our sin so that you might feed multitudes, so that you might feed billions of people spiritually with your life. Lord, we thank you for the hope that we have in darkness because of you. We thank you that we hope the hope we have in the second coming, that one day we'll see you again and and there'll be no more tears. You will wipe all of it away. Lord Jesus, we thank you that we can look ahead and we can look behind and know that you are to be trusted. Lord, help us to watch faithfully. Help us to wait in hope and eager anticipation that one day you will come to see us, to be with us, to live with us, to judge the living and the dead and to bring the new heavens and the new earth. Lord, we look forward to that day and we ask that you help us to keep our eyes fixed on you. Amen.